Well, we are continuing the study through the attributes of God. We're going to wrap up today with the communicable attributes. We spent three weeks talking about the incommunicable attributes of God. And this is the second lesson on the communicable attributes of God. Now, as we think about the difference between incommunicable and communicable, we've had a week off, so it's been two weeks since we've gone over this. Who can tell me what the difference is between the two? Have it embedded in your brain? Okay, incommunicable are non-transferable. And really, the word incommunicable could be translated from English to English as non-transferable. It's quite literally what it means. So that means communicable is transferable in some sense, or replicable in some sense, right? So when we think about things that are communicable, hi, you guys. Um, As we think about what... uh, God's attributes of love, you got your sheet there in front of you, you see love and um, peace and wisdom and all these things. We've talked about some of them, but not all of them yet. Uh, These are things that we can experience and replicate in our lives. Incommunicable attributes that God does not share, communicable attributes that God allows those made in his image to replicate to some degree. Being made in his image is an important part of that formula because Uh, Dolphins, though they might be able to communicate to each other, uh, can dolphins um, understand, well, can they show and truly understand what they're doing, showing agape love for one another? (laughs) No, they can't. Now, now there may be some sense where, you know, like maybe one monkey gives up his life for another monkey and you you see the article online, it's this really sweet thing, but... Is it done with full understanding? Is it done in the same sense of the way a human would do it? Well, certainly not. Jerry, you had a thought? I was just going to say, you should put a plug in for that amazing book created in the English of God. Oh, yes. Right in the middle of it. Oh, good. You're reading it. Good. Sometimes I give people books and I don't know what they do with them. So that's good to know. Uh, Yeah, there's a book by Anthony Hokema. H-O-E. K-E-N-A, Hokema, Anthony Hokema, and the book is called Created in His Image. It's the best book that I know of on anthropology, which is the study of man, Uh, the best book that I own regarding um, man being created in the image of God and what all that entails and how sin fits into that equation. Very good book. Melissa. Were there notes somewhere? Do you have last, last time's notes? Because it's just the same sheet. Created in His Image. Yep, by Anthony Hokema. Good book. All right, so we went over the communicable attributes. Uh, I say the communicable attributes. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this is a, uh, a good list that sums up God's incommunicable attributes. Simplicity, what did that mean? Or does that mean? He's not made up of parts. Good. You think of an airplane or a car, and how many parts are involved in those? (laughs) Several, right? And we think of God, and he's made up of three parts, right? Father, Son, and Spirit? Mm, Okay, we're going to get into that next week. We're going to start talking about the Trinity next week. Uh, God is not made up of parts. He is a simple, indivisible being. God is transcendent. What does that mean? Outside of 
outside of time, space, and matter. Outside of time and space and matter. Now, obviously, eternality goes hand in hand with that. If the God is outside of time, if he is a timeless being, if he is from everlasting to everlasting, God had no beginning, and he has no ending. He is eternal. Now, taking those thoughts that he is outside of time and space and matter, and coupling that with God being imminent is quite astounding, because what does imminent mean? He's here. He's here. Yes. He is ever-present, right? He is outside of time and space and matter. And where do we encounter him? Within time and space and matter. Wow. Okay. Pretty amazing. Uh, and that's the part where we, if you remember the sheet that you had with the crosshairs on it, and we had the different directions you could go, Christianity is the only religion that has a God that is both transcendent and imminent. Every other religion pushes him toward transcendence alone or pushes him toward imminence alone. And yet he is truly both. And he is immutable. That's a funny way of saying he doesn't change. God does not change. And aren't we thankful? That is why the sons of Jacob were not consumed. And that's why we are not consumed is because God does not change. Omnipotent. What does that one mean? Good. Is there any strength that God lacks? Absolutely not. Omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's omnipresent, meaning he is in multiple places at once. So just because God is uh, listening to and responding to one person's prayer, does that mean he is unable to listen to and respond to other people's prayers? Well, no, because he's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Wow. Pretty cool. Okay, we went through the communicable attributes um, last week, I believe, up until humility. I think we finished with humility last time. We talked about love, grace, mercy, justice, humility. What's the greatest event in all of world history that displayed God's humility? Yeah, well, it's the, pretty much the whole incarnation and ministry leading up to the cross, right? Let's pick up where we left off in Philippians 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. G-E-P-C. Philippians. Find Philippians. Oh, hey, there you go. That works. We can, we can make all kinds of it. Cool ones. All right. And we talked about his humility being surprising, of course, because he is owed um, all things and he owes no man anything. So surprising. It's glorious. It's exemplary. It's conducive. It's seen in Christ. That's what we'll see here. And counterintuitive to us selfish, finite sinners. Let's look at Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. Let's read that whole section. Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Who can read that for us? Got it. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus the name will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. So you see, in the incarnation of Christ, humility. And in the death of Christ, humility. Remember we were pointing out in verse 5, or sorry, verse 6, Jesus existed in the form of God. This is past tense. And when did He exist in the form of God according to this verse? Before, after the incarnation? Yeah, good. Good answer. But this is particularly pointing out before the incarnation, right? He was in the form of God. Before, the, before He took on flesh, He was in the form of God. And at that time, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was humble even in heaven. And then He made Himself nothing, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So the humility existed before the incarnation and it's seen in the incarnation. And then, of course, as Andy pointed out, the death of Christ, He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humbled Himself. Humbled Himself. Amazing, isn't it? And that mind of humility, and it's important that we don't lose the the context of chapter 2. So often we can turn here to prove things theologically, but there's actually a really sweet uh, exhortation here. Verse 4, it says, Look to the interest of others. That's the idea. How do you do that? Verse 5, because this mind of humility is yours in Christ. This is the mind of Christ to be humble. And it's yours. You have access to it. You can can do it. In Jesus, you can be Christ-like in your humility. So let's not just use Philippians 2 as a theological hammer, beating people over the head and saying, see, look, Jesus is God in flesh. That point is certainly there. But don't use it just for that. Use it for the church and say, because Jesus did this, we can too. Not be God in flesh, but be humble. Okay? Other thoughts on humility or questions? Just a specific way to use that theological hammer. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting that cults will often point to the very passages that we would point to to prove Christ's deity, to disprove his deity, and to make their twisted points about who Jesus is, and this is a popular one for Jehovah's Witnesses. They like to go here and point out the fact that, well, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to grasp, and they'll often stop at verse 8 or 9. Yeah, verse 8, but if you look at verse 9, it says, for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and they make a big deal about that, um, that God's name is Jehovah, and it's the highest of all names, and he bestowed it on, on Jesus. And then the next verse, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So just remember to ex- expand that context when you're looking at certain passages and go beyond what they're looking at in one or two verses. Yeah, every cult and false religion will do two things. They will, well, do one of two things, though the vast majority of them do both. Uh, the first is to question the Word of God, to put some sort of skepticism 
a blanket skepticism over all of Scripture. And the second thing is to deny that Jesus is the one true God. And uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, do that. They also deny that he died on a cross, though in the Greek it's very clear at the end of verse 8 that he died on a cross. It says it right there in the text. Um, but they, they don't believe Jesus is the one true God. Uh, this passage addresses that, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, several others in the New Testament as well. Okay? Other thoughts or questions? Okay. Wisdom is the next word. And does anyone know the Greek word for wisdom? It's a popular girl's name. Sophia. Sophia. Very good. Sophia. Uh, this is where, <clears throat> I think I mentioned it in uh, the sermon last week, week before. Uh, philosophy. Our word philosophy comes from two Greek words. Uh, phileo means to love. It's a verb that means I love. And Sophia, it's a noun that means wisdom. Philosophy means to love wisdom. Philosophia, love wisdom. What can we say about God's wisdom? What can't you say about God's wisdom? But what can we say about God's wisdom? Incomprehensible. Okay, very good. Yeah, we're going to look at a passage that makes that clear. It is incomprehensible to us, right? Very good. Someone's been listening to the First Corinthians Sermon Series. Good. Yeah, we'll talk more about that from the pulpit today. It's always been his. He's always had it. Yeah. He's never learned it. It's just hit. Yeah. Possessed eternally. Oh, that's, yes. That's exactly Very say. good. Good. Yeah. Uh, it's the highest, right? Is there any, any wisdom that ranks higher than God's wisdom? Absolutely not. Here's, this should just make you... Feel a little bit lightheaded. It's available to us. God's wisdom is available to us. God's wisdom is masterful, active, an active wisdom, meaning this isn't dormant wisdom that sits in his mind, <laughs> in his mind alone, but it's an active wisdom that plays out in everything we do in the world. Think about just what's going on right now in your life. I'm not talking about the things outside of these walls necessarily or outside of this room. Um, you're blinking, you're breathing, your heart's beating. There are all kinds of things that are going on in and around you. You're able to breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide and all of that. That's amazing. God's wisdom is actively at work in the world all around us every single moment of every single day. Isn't that crazy? That's why he would say that you're a fool and you deny his existence. Yes. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's foolishness to deny God because of the world we live in. God's wisdom is all-encompassing. Is there anything that God is foolish about? <laughs> no. He's perfectly wise in all things, isn't he? His wisdom is rich. How often do we see God's wisdom compared to riches in Scripture? It's better than gold and silver. And uh, I think we, we mentioned others here. Um, we already mentioned some others, but are there any more thoughts that we have about God's wisdom? Do you just want to look at some passages and we'll draw out of there? Mm. I think of the passage, um, God is not a God of confusion. Yes, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, I think. Yeah, God is not the author of confusion. 
He's God of peace. Yeah. Um, we confuse things, don't we? <laughs> Here as uh, sinners who are finite, we're just kind of like scrambling around, doing our own things, full of pride and trying to build our own kingdoms and our kingdoms bump into each other. And it's just, we make things confusing. And God is not only full of grace and mercy and peace and love, but he's so wise and his wisdom is just, it just creates peace, creates more peace, doesn't it? Our wisdom doesn't do that. <laughs> and we try, but we can't, we can't create peace like God does. Let's look at these passages. Who would take Job 38, 36 and 37? Who's got that for us? Job 38, 36 and 37. Got it. Okay. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Andy and Mr. Carroll, you want to take 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 7? A little preview for what's coming here in a couple weeks. All right, let's talk about God's wisdom. Job 38, 36 to 37. Go ahead and read it when you got it, Logan. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and stay and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Mm. Yeah, this is a great section of Scripture where Job is just being questioned, I guess you could say. Uh, read that again for us, Logan. 36 and 37. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, ask, ask somebody that. Count the clouds. Could you do that for me? Can you number the clouds in the sky? Uh, of course, the stars, another good example. God knows them all by name, doesn't he? And he's the one who places wisdom and understanding in people, it says. So anytime someone thinks they have wisdom or thinks they have understanding, they could be right to a degree, but they have to acknowledge the source of that wisdom and understanding, God himself. Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, speaking to the idea of acknowledging the source of our wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. You may think you know a lot of things, you, you might know a lot of facts, you might think you're wise, and you might have some proverbs and riddles to share, but if you don't fear the Lord, then what is that wisdom and what is that knowledge? Well, it's hollow, isn't it? It is vanity. It's disconnected. Disconnected, yes. It's not... Um, there's no true understanding that transcends our experience. But when we acknowledge God as God, we fear Him, we submit to Him, and that's our starting point, from that point forward, we can have an understanding that is from above. We can have a wisdom that is from above that we could never, ever, ever get on our own. Ever. Yes, Melissa? I just think it's amazing that God is perfectly all of these things. 
So, because like, we might increase in what we think is wisdom, but then we get proud, and then we're unloving, and then, you know, like, mm -hmm. then we start sinning, and, but God is perfectly wise, and perfectly humble, and perfectly <laughs> loving, and all, every attribute, and, um, and we should obviously desire to grow in each of those, not just in one, but in each, so that they can inform each other. Yeah, just to... A real simple way of showing that God alone is God. Take these last two attributes we talked about. Show me someone who's really wise and also really humble. So show me someone who is truly perfectly wise and truly perfectly humble. What do we do with knowledge and wisdom? So often it just puffs up, right? The scripture says. And God is perfectly humble in his perfect wisdom. Boasting, that's what we'll see today. Yep, boasting. All right, and uh, 1 Corinthians 2, Jerry. In verses 6 and 7. If we do not speak wisdom among these who are mature, they wisdom have not of this age, nor are the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom, and a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages, to our glory. All right, so Paul's making an argument. Uh, we've started it in the sermon series talking about wisdom. And he makes this argument that goes into chapter 2, speaking of the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And in these two verses, Paul makes it very clear under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there are two different types of wisdom. And the wisdom that Christians speak that we come to know through the gospel is a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Hidden from whom? Yeah, the world, the lost, those who don't believe in Jesus. And we have access to it through the gospel. So the wisdom that we speak is not a wisdom of this age, verse 6 says, or of the rulers of this age. They are the ones who are passing away. The wisdom that we speak is that from above, the wisdom we've come to learn through the gospel. Important. Right down below that, verses 12 and 13 speaks of uh, uh, the Spirit who is in God is yeah. and gives us that wisdom. Yes, that's it. Yeah, the, uh, the mode of our understanding is by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The capital A author of Scripture you ever thought about that, how every passage of Scripture actually has two authors? <laughs> There's a lowercase a and a capital A. And guess what? The capital A author abides in you if you're a Christian. So every day is like meet the author day. <laughs> yeah, he's right there, and he can explain it to you by enlightening your mind, by giving you understanding as you read the words of Scripture. Andy, you had a thought. I was just thinking um, back to the parables that Jesus spoke to people. He, mm -hmm. he spoke the parables, and he did it to, so that they would be hearing yet not hear, and perceiving yet not understanding. He was speaking wisdom to people, both those that believed and those who did not, in parables, and yet the ones that did not would see it as foolishness. That is absolutely right. And because the disciples were given insight as to what the parables meant, he says, you're blessed. Or we could say privileged, even though that word has become a dirty word today. Um, it's a good thing. Blessed by God to be able to understand. All right. Any other thoughts on wisdom? Logan. 
I'm talking about this wisdom just kind of takes me back to uh, Arkansas. I had an old friend. Up. I've not heard that before. And he had a very simple, almost a childlike understanding, which was very good. I mean, I really appreciated it because stuff either made sense or it didn't. Mm. Um, and he would go to the surrounding churches and what they taught, but then what they lived out during the week totally did not make sense to him. And he said, that is not what I read in my Bible. And he was not, a, he was not saved at this point. But it was all just confusing him like crazy, and he knew that there was a better way. And so I would just sit down for hours sometime and just, you know, tell him, you know, well, this is what I try to do, uh, living out the Bible. This is what I understand it to say to me. Um, and anyhow, with, you know, years, as years went by, he would say, well, what about the flood? Am I supposed to believe that? He's like, I can't even begin to understand or believe that. And I'm like, well, some of them things just stump us, literally. But the thing is, as soon as you put faith in God, you will believe that. Mm -hmm. And and just certain things like that. Yeah. Like he would read where God would tell the children of Israel, go slaughter this nation, women, children, everybody. Kill them all. And then he would read the New Testament and he'd say, what's happening here? Mm -hmm. Is this the same God? And he just could not grasp that. Mm -hmm. And... And, and it just struck home to me that, that uh, see, I was raised that I would read the Bible and I took it at face value, and I just, it happened. That's how it happened, yep. you know. Although sometimes it is hard for us to even believe it, though. Hmm. But uh, here was somebody that he was reading this, and it just seemed like to believe it, he would have to just believe all these fairy tales that you're, hmm. you know, that are floating around. It was, it's just another fairy tale that he has to totally put his trust in. Mm -hmm. And so it hit home to me that, yeah, um, you just got to totally put yourself out there, have faith in him. And I think that's kind of what this is saying, you know, as far as wisdom. He holds it from those that don't believe. But as soon as you truly start believing and understanding and, and putting faith yeah. in that belief, mm -hmm. then it makes sense. And, and that is the distinction between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. Right. The world's wisdom looks at the things we believe. You believe a man raised from the dead? Yeah. That's foolishness. Right? Yeah. To the world? But God's wisdom, which starts with fearing God and submitting to God, you start there. And if God is who he says he is, what is it for him to raise a man from the dead? What is it for him to flood the earth? What is it for him to do any of those things in scripture? It's simple. It's foolishness to him because it's so simple. Because God is God, and we are not. And the world, by its wisdom, did not know God. 1 Corinthians 1, right? We recognize that. You start with God's wisdom and submitting to Him. Good. Anyhow, he did become a Christian a year later. Amen. And he was, you know, the local churches said, well, you have to become a part of our body to be baptized. Hmm. And then he would read the Bible, and he's like, well, what the world? You know, this is a little weird here. Yeah. But anyhow, he did find a, a minister, a pastor, that baptized him, but didn't necessarily connect him to his church. Hmm. He did come and baptize him on the confession of his faith. And, you know? and he was in his 80s when all that happened, huh? Oh, yeah. He was, wow. He's 85. I, I need to... Uh, he, he can barely see, you know, but I don't know. To hmm. me, that's just... It shows the world around us and how simplicity... 
takes you to God. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yep, God is God is simple and his simplicity confounds the wise. Tyler? Um, yeah, just in the same way we make that distinction between incommunicable and communicable attributes, there's a similar difference between the the way that these attributes are poured out on the believer and the unbeliever. Um, because they're still made in the image of God. And so in some respect they still have some degree of wisdom, some ability to understand the to observe and we we still learn things from unbelievers all the time in math and sciences and different areas of life um, but we need to be careful where we draw that line um, yes they can observe things as they can teach us things to a degree but they can account for these things so mm. they can it's descriptive rather than prescriptive they can look at something and they can describe like you said um that there is such a thing as injustice but to prescribe what we should do to remedy this injustice they're not in any position to to do because they're not working with the wisdom of god and really the the scientists and mathematicians that exist who are brilliant yeah. uh, are brilliant to their shame because god is shaming the world um, he is removing boasting because they cannot account for where science and math come from. And when you ask them, these ones who deny God, where science and math come from? Well, just math, we'll just take one example. Where, how does math even exist in your worldview? The answers they give are quite foolish. Yeah. You can't make sense of math without God. You can't make sense of anything without God. Okay. There's always something yeah. that's confusing to me as we studied the first four books. Uh, the gospel, how the disciples were so naive and so blind. <laughs> and, but in Luke 24, 45, mm. uh, as we're closing to the time of Christ's name, he said, and then he opened their minds. Yes, to the two he met on the road. Yeah, yes. Finally, they saw... Uh, I wonder, you know, where is it in our life sometimes that mm -hmm. we, as we go through life, we develop an illumination really come to us. Mm -hmm. And it's gradually something more sensitive than it is profoundly just bestowed upon us. But it is a fact that, you know, if you look at the disciples, they're great examples of our lives. Mm -hmm. In the sense, even though they were with Christ, they were so blinded to the scriptures and they knew the scriptures. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we just studied in our Acts study on Wednesday nights in Acts 16. Lydia, the first European convert, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so what, what this means is one word, dependent. We are dependent, aren't we? We are dependent on God. Okay, okay we got to keep going. If we're going to make this, uh, we're going to finish this out. We need to go a little bit quicker. Peace is the next one. It's the Greek word, eirene. Eirene, the word for peace. What can we say about God's peace? Travis? Fly, man. I've oh. Tried to fly with him. <laughs> Bad timing. It was a messenger from Satan to buffet you. I'm thinking, no, no, no. Okay, all right. Well, now, now that we're all looking at you, you got any thoughts on what God's peace is? God's <laughs> peace is, I don't know, man. The best. <laughs> yeah, good. Surpasses understanding. Good. 
we could say perfect, right? You can say that for every one of his attributes, so that's kind of cheating. Um, exclusive? Exclusive? Does, um, in the sense that, is God's peace available to all who call on him? Well, yes. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, yes. But can you have God's peace apart from Christ? No, you can't. So it's exclusive in that sense. There's only one path to get to peace. Unshaken. Do things happen in the world and then God loses his peace? <laughs> no way. Absolutely no way. Eternal. It's forever. God's peace is absolutely forever. I don't know why I put that in there because that's what the whole point of this lesson is. Uh, to be replicated, yes. Orderly. God's peace is orderly. Going back to what Dory brought up in 1 Corinthians 14, that God is not the author of confusion but of peace. That means his peace is not confusing. It's orderly. God's peace, it's a quiet peace. We make lots of noise as creatures, don't we? Um, and we try to get things through noise and marching around and stomping and demanding our way. And God's peace is quiet. Aren't we thankful for the still small voice, the peace that God provides, the quiet peace? What else? Other adjectives you want to throw out? A gift. Gift, good. Yes, this piece is gifted to us. Very good. Okay, well, let's look at some of these. Do you have all four passages on your sheet or just three? Do you have all four? Four. four. Good. Exodus 34, 27 to 28. Who will read that? You got, you got it, Travis? Okay, Matthew 5, verse 9. Matthew 5, 9. It's the Beatitudes. You guys should know that one. Okay, you can take that one, Sandra. 1 Corinthians 14.33. I feel like that's got to be someone in the Mast family because it was brought up earlier. So 1 Corinthians 14.33, one of you. And uh, Tyler, you want to take Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Okay, let's hear about God's peace. The peace of God, Exodus 34, 27 and 28. Go ahead, Travis. Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days, forty nights. He did not eat bread nor drink water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Okay. Um, let's see. Were you in Exodus 34, 26 and 27? 27, 35. 34, 27, 28. Oh, you did 27 and 28. That's what you're supposed to do. You did what you're supposed to do. Very good. That was just a test. Uh, Exodus 34, 27 and 28. Yeah, so um, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Have you ever wondered what those 40 days and 40 nights were like? Horrible. <laughs> Horrible? Why do you say that, young man? For Moses or for the people? For Moses. Oh, uh, well, for Moses, maybe not so. Okay, all right. Okay, good save. Uh, <laughs> what do you think it was like for Moses? Well, it was pretty all-encompassing because he didn't have to bother eating or drinking. That's what he means. No eating or drinking. Do you think he was hungry and thirsty? Mm-mm, Why not? Understand. Wouldn't you be for 40 days and 40 nights? Not if God was teaching you, baby. That'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, he was... 
At that point, we could say, uh, nearest to the presence of God that any human had experienced on the face of the earth, um, there he was, being sustained. Glowing here a little bit. Yeah, Not glowing. Right after that, the shining face of Moses, yes. How can Jesus said we don't exist by bread and water? That's right. Yeah, he was sustained by the words of God. You think it was a peaceful 40 days and 40 nights? Probably the most peaceful 40 days he had experienced to that point in his life. All the trumpets and the lightnings and thunderings, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I bet it was a pretty peaceful 40 days. Of course it is. Okay, um, Matthew 5 9. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. So we know that God is a God of peace, and He has enabled His people to be peacemakers. Is that a good goal in life, to be a peacemaker, to be called a peacemaker? It certainly is. Okay. 1 Corinthians 14.33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Good. See, it's a good thing you read that instead of her, because just like the verses before say... She better not be reading that verse in church. <clears throat> well, that's we'll get to that part of First Corinthians long after Jerry dies, so we'll, it'll be it'll be a while. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Jerry. Am I? I don't know. Uh, Philippians four six through seven. <clears throat> be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right. As we make our requests known to God, we receive back the peace of God that surpasses understanding. Do you understand that? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? Okay, now we'll look at the last one, because I think there's something after the last one we need to discuss also. Jealousy, it's the word zealous. We use the word zealous in our vocabulary. The Greek word is zealous or jealousy. God's jealousy. Hmm, probably haven't thought about this one too much, huh? What can you say about God's jealousy? It's righteous. Okay, good. We want to say at the beginning, God's jealousy is righteous. So it's not a arrogant, prideful, selfish jealousy like we normally associate with that word. It's a righteous jealousy. Jerry? Just. Good. Same as yeah. Righteous. Just. Just. It's only logical. He has grounds for his jealousy, doesn't he? Any other thoughts about God's jealousy? Loving. I mean, it's for the benefit of man. Yeah, it starts and ends with his love. Good. We can say, because of that, it's wonderful. And there's that word Travis used righteous. God's jealousy is wonderful and righteous. His jealousy is spiritual. So often our jealousy is carnal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We're jealous of that car or that living situation or this or that or whatever. His is spiritual. It's logical. God's jealousy is logical. It flows logically from his character and nature and actions. His jealousy is for all that is his. God owns stuff. Did you know that? (laughs) It's motivating. God's jealousy should be motivating. That he is jealous for his people. Wow. Any other 
thoughts, ad- adjectives for God's jealousy before we examine it in the scriptures. Okay, well, let's go to the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 4 through 6. Let's do all these together. Let's all turn to Exodus 20, second book of your Bible, chapter 20. Look at verses 4 through 6. This is either the second or third commandment, depending on which list you follow, if you're Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Protestant. But um, verses 4 through 6, we see God's jealousy, I believe, for the first time in Scripture. Who would read that for us? Okay. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, in heaven above or on the earth beneath you, or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right. So the reason why you shouldn't bow down to false gods or serve them is because Yahweh is a jealous God. What do you think about that? were made by him, they are his, and so they shouldn't be giving any of his credits to anything else. So there's like an intrinsic obligation that man has to serve and worship Yahweh alone. Good. Other thoughts on this little section here? I think it's a demonstration of his love. Yeah, it is. I mean, what can false God do for him? He tells us all mm-hmm. we know from nothing. Yeah. If, if we don't worship the true God, then our worship's not worth anything. Yeah. If we do worship the true God, there's much to be gained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has to be out of love that he's jealous because does he need us? He doesn't need us, but he's jealous for us. Now, wrap your minds around that. Purely because of his love. Let's go to Matthew 11 together. Matthew 11. You should know this verse. Matthew 11:28. You may not think of God's jealousy when you see this verse, but maybe you will from now on. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Who would like to read that for us? Melissa, go ahead. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Son of God extending an invitation to come to Him. Not because He needs us, because he wants us from a loving position. He wants to display his love in us and through us. Remarkable, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, this will get to the heart of that God's jealousy should be motivating for us. 1 Corinthians 6. And 
And let's look at verses 18 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. How can the jealousy of God be motivating? Someone want to read that for us? Chapter 6, 18 to 20. Okay, go ahead, Lisa. Run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, a person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, you're your body of Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Does God care about what we do with our bodies? Yes, and our minds, and our emotions, because we believe in Him. He owns us. And he is jealous for us to live for him as we have these earthly bodies for a little while. Okay. Other thoughts or questions on God's jealousy? Well, we have our earthly bodies for a little while, but we have our bodies forever. Yes, earthly bodies are temporary, but we will, this corruptible will put on incorruptible, and that is forever. Metamorphs. You will be a butterfly one day, Mr. Bowman. <laughs> Very good. Good, good. Okay. Okay, well, let's look. Um, I think I left it in here. Let's see. All of God's communicable attributes added together and multiplied by infinity equals true holiness. Do you guys like equations? Do you guys like math? If you add up all of God's communicable attributes, which our list here isn't exhaustive, but add them all up, multiply them by infinity, which is what God is, infinite, eternal, and then you have true holiness. So the scriptures say, be holy, for I am holy, God declares us. And his standard of holiness Pretty high standard, isn't it? He is infinitely all of his attributes, and that is holiness. Holiness. And when we say we strive for holiness, we're talking about imitating God himself. Let's go through some questions here. I just kind of let us into it. I'll read this to you. 1 Peter 1.16, it's a quote from Leviticus. And it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So as you consider God's perfect holiness, what do you make of that exhortation in Scripture? you need to add 17 in there. And so I shall. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So it should be motivating. There should be motivation there. Yeah, I was just thinking yesterday... Uh, do we believe we will have to give an account? Now, I'm not saying do we believe the Bible says that. Do we believe that verse is in there? Because we all know it is. Do you believe that you will have to give an account? 
Scripture says, yes, you will. Let's go to the next one. That's a depressing yeah. thought. <laughs> well, there is some, there, you know, it says that there are differences in punishments and there are differences in rewards and I can't help my logical mind says that the, that is related or accounting has something to do with it. It used to be totally just in all of his judgments. Well, we will get to 1 Corinthians 3 soon. And 1 Corinthians 3 talks about all of our works being put through the fire. And there will be things that burn and things that remain. What a day that will be, huh? Okay. Why does it matter that God has these attributes? And which one do you think is most surprising? So why does it matter? And which one do you think is most surprising? Well, it matters because we are to be imitating so yes. The purpose of being created in God's image is to imitate Him, the overarching purpose. And if we don't know what God is like, then we can't do that, can we? Andy? I was just going to say that um, His communicable attributes are something that we can apprehend, we can't fully comprehend it. But. <clears throat> just like with anything else in our lives, if we don't look to Scripture and look to God, we will use any one of these attributes in simple ways. Mm-hmm. Any one. Yeah. Uh, love, you know, the grace. They can all be turned towards selfish gain, can't that's they? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. And I think the one that's most surprising to me, His um, justice makes sense. That echoes in my heart. But His humility, and how at the cross he was perfectly just and perfectly humble simultaneously wow 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 okay um, how does a right understanding of these of these attributes impact your view of imputed righteousness ooh this is good so we haven't discussed discussed imputed righteousness yet um Hopefully you have a a general idea of what that means. Um, I'll just go ahead and explain it. On the cross, our sins were imputed to Christ. He was in our place as a substitutionary atonement. He was being penalized, punished for our transgressions. Our sins were imputed. Then when we believed and we were justified, on what grounds were we justified? Not just that he took our sins away... But that all of the righteousness that he has, as he lived out that perfect life, perfectly obeying the law 33 years, that life got credited to your account, imputed to your account. So how does a right understanding of these attributes impact your view of imputed righteousness? Or how should it? Melissa? Do you have a thought, anyway? But put you in uh, Travis's place from earlier. <clears throat> uh, just, like, increases my, like, awareness of how simple I am and how mm. grateful I am that he, that I, like, I don't have to even, because I can't, I don't have to try to reach that standard. 
Well, well, on the one hand, it should show you how sinful you are. And on the other hand, it should show you how righteous you are in God's yeah. sight. Mind-blowing. You asked which was the most astonishing to me, that the mercy uh-huh. and grace, I mean, that's yeah. incomprehensible. Grace and mercy, absolutely. That is how we have access to this righteousness. Okay, I'm going to give you homework. <laughs> Write this down. you got homework for next time. Where in Scripture is the Trinity... Either implied or explained. Where in Scripture is the Trinity either implied or explained? If you've not encountered it yet, you will be in a discussion with somebody who is not a Christian and you will be challenged on your view of the Trinity. That God is one and yet He is three eternal persons. You need to know from Scripture how you're going to make these arguments. And we're going to learn together, but I want you to do this on your own first. Implied or explained. And I just want to give you an idea of where we're going. You've got theism that exists as a philosophical view. All theism says at a base level is God exists. That's it. Atheism says no God exists. Theism says God exists. Monotheism says one God exists. So we're narrowing it down from theism because under theism you have polytheism and monotheism. Polytheism is a big basket full of all kinds of crazy beliefs. Monotheism, uh, you basically got the big three religions, Islam, uh, or Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Now beyond that, though, we can get more specific. We are Trinitarian monotheists. We believe there is one God, yet we believe there are three distinct yet co-eternal persons. We are the only ones. And the cheese stands alone. Here we are. Trinitarian monotheists. So just to get your mind going, that's where we're headed. Um, In our thinking, we're different than the other views. Okay? Thoughts or questions? You have one minute. Yes, it is. It is a claim about the God who does exist. Very true. All righty. Andy, you want to close us in prayer? Absolutely.